0: Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain.
1: Hi everybody, welcome back to another episode of Action 22. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian Dean McCain. There it is. I know, but I really my, like the other s- things that we say, like dastardly and delirious. Well,
2: I was going to say dumb. That's what my kids call me sometimes.
1: No, we, but, c- we can better use our words than that. You guys don't
2: need a guest.
0: You guys do great <laughs> There you go.
1: <laughs> we've we've been doing this for a little while together. I'm glad everybody's joining us. We are here with our Attorney General Phil Weiser. Um, we're excited to have him on the show. Phil has been uh, a member of Action 22 almost since I've been with Action 22, um, and he's been a wonderful friend to us. He's currently running. Uh, again for re-election for Attorney General, and so we wanted to have him on the show. Uh, again, you've been on our show several times. It was, um, it's been so great. I think one of the first times we had you on the show, we actually did it at the annual meeting, and it was in front of everybody, um, and everybody just loved us just having a conversation. So of course we love these formats because we can just be authentic and talk issues out. And the theater and drama of debates, while we all enjoy the hair pulling tickle fights that those de- dissolve into, we particularly love it. So thanks for being here with us.
0: Well, I appreciate Action 22 and I will be there for you. Um, Sarah, yeah. Brian, appreciate you. Your authenticity and how much you care about your community.
1: Yes, we do. Thank you so much. Okay, so let's just dive right into it. Um, If you are a regular listener to the show, you know that we've also had conversations with a whole lot of other people who are running for office who are members of Action 22, um, and that's an open invitation to anybody who are members. Um, And we've, uh, we've talked with your opponent, and we are kind of following up with some of the questions that we posed at the gubernatorial debates that we Uh, moderated earlier this week. So that was really fun. But I kind of want to get into the thing that we've been talking about for the last several years, and that's water in Colorado. The number one, possibly the number one issue that we end up talking about every day is water. And you have jumped right in. So I'm going to ask you the tough question. What is better for Colorado, prior appropriations or public trust?
0: Well, it's only a tough question if you don't know water law, because if you know water law, you know that we have the prior appropriation doctrine. And if we tried to upend that doctrine, it would cause all sorts of brain damage, litigation, legal uncertainty. The challenge is within a prior appropriation doctrine and with scarcity, how do you manage water? Mm-hmm. And how do you manage it with the public in mind? Those are among the thorniest legal and policy challenges that an attorney general can face. And what makes this doubly hard is it's not just within Colorado, it's Colorado and surrounding states. The work we've done on water law has been recognized across the state. And I just have to start by appreciating Russ George, a great water law leader, former Republican Speaker of the House, Dick Bratton, another great water law leader. They both wrote, and I guess this is running for office time. So in the Grand Junction Sentinel, we need our attorney general who's an expert on water and knows how to protect our water. Phil Weiser is the right person. So, yes, the prior operation Doctrine is the one we have. It is going to be a challenge because the reality is with a changing climate, we have less water. And if we make bad choices, like allowing the buying and drying of rural communities, we are going to destroy communities and people's lives.
1: We saw a lot of, um, well, a really good example, and we're going to see it come back again with a whole buy and dry thing in it. Um, we saw some efforts that have been going on this year, but it's indicative of what we're going to continue to see. How do we protect both... Um, uh, property, uh, private property, personal property rights and protect and manage that water. Cause that's one of the things that I think we really worry about is if we tell somebody that they can't sell their private property, um, for a profit or for anything else. But at the same time, we're saying you have to protect the water. How does that work? Cause it's a slippery,
0: slippery slope. So there's a tension there that you put your finger on and Part of the answer to that tension is to making the community part of the conversation. And let me explain one of the levers that we focused on. Every county can adopt what they call a 1041 uh, ordinance using 1041 authority so that anytime you have a project that would, for example, take water out of a community, the local community can review it to make sure that it – doesn't, for example, destroy the local economy. That's important because that means communities are at the table when we make these decisions. They're not on the menu. Part of our water future is going to continue to involve what you hear called alternative transfer arrangements uh, and or alternative transfer mechanisms. The need is what if there's a huge demand for water at some point and there's some farmers who say, you know what, I've got some flexibility, what I plant, when I plant. I'm willing to create some adaptive structure. That, as long as the community understands it and supports it, can be very healthy. What's not healthy is what happened in Crowley County, where they took 95% of the water rights, they were all sold to the Cowder Springs utility, and you destroyed a community. And there have been articles written about that economy, 40 years later, there's half the population among the highest per capita deaths nationwide for COVID, huge opioid epidemic. So water is life in Colorado. And yes, it's a private property right. And it has to make sense for communities before we allow more destruction like happened in Crowley County. In some communities, you can have these mechanisms that can actually be good for the community. Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that we're keeping the community in mind and we're not putting them on the menu.
2: And a perfect example of that is the SDS when Pueblo was dealing with Colorado Springs what that was the 1041 process and what that did was bring the, bring the community to the table to negotiate that process instead of just saying, hey we bought this, we're going to pipe it out done you know and that, that was a fight over a couple of years and it, you know both sides compromised on it but it was the best for both communities
0: And that's the key point. bring the community to the table. We are going to have tough decisions on water. We need to make them all together. The two questions we ask is, what do you need? What can you give up with all of us in mind? It was actually at your housing summit where I gave that Mm -hmm. speech about 1041. And I said then, and we will commit, any community who says, we're trying to figure out this 1041 power, how to use it, call us, we'll help.
2: And uh, one thing that we talked about with your opponent earlier was that there's this kind of dark cloud in the background of renegotiating the compact. Mm. And
0: what role you would play in that as Attorney General? We're not going to renegotiate the compact. It's a little bit like um, opening up the U.S. Constitution. I'm afraid of what would happen. Now, we have new guidelines that will implement the compact, and this is really important because the current situation is untenable. We, upper basin states, are allowed 7.5 million acre feet. Lower basin states, 7.5 million acre feet. It was a brilliant framework. What happened last year? We used 3.5 million acre feet. The lower basin states, they used 10 million acre feet. Mm -hmm. That is scary because they can't afford to keep using that amount. The reservoirs are done. They need to start changing. We need to help them, and we have to come up with a framework that captures this new operating model. One of the most important things I will do in a second term is work on that very issue.
1: I think one of the things that we we hear from our ag community, um, and it's – it's a scary proposition, but it's really, how do we save acre feet and what's going to be put on us? You know, you know what ag means to our state. It's, it's our culture. It's a part of a important part of our economy. Um, How do we, and, but they also use the most water, right? They're the ones that use the most water. How do we protect the vitally important ag community um, when they're the top water users?
0: Again, It's my whole spirit of governing. I want people to feel they're at the table, not on the menu. So we need conversations with our agriculture communities, and they will include things like, what are your irrigation practices? They will include things like, have you thought about different possible crops that use less water? Other ways that you might be more adaptable in certain drier years, maybe not to plant. We're not going to be able to keep doing the same thing. And I think everyone in agriculture knows that. They want to be respected. They want to be heard. And they want to be partnered with. I'm committed to doing that. And and, uh, another thing, too, that I, I appreciate, you have water lawyers on staff, correct? Oh, yeah. This is important. If you look at Texas and New Mexico, and we're in litigation with them right now in the Rio Grande, they contract out for water lawyers, spend a ridiculous amount of money, and then have this incentive problem that the lawyers may not want the litigation to end. That's how they're getting paid. Our lawyers are in-house, only serving the state of Colorado, only serving what's best for Colorado. We've got a great water law firm. I'm proud of our team and I work closely with them.
1: Excellent. Okay, so let's move on to the other big issue, one of the other big issues, um, and that is public safety. Boy,
2: oh boy, have I, we! B- I would say it's the biggest issue on voters' minds right now. I think probably, it is. At least I in think our the area. economy
1: and public safety, yeah. but public safety. I'll tell you, we've had um, so many conversations. We are doing meetings of the mayors, and this mm-hmm. is the top of the list. Um, so we we talked about this, um, but it's worth it's worth noting um, the Colorado Bureau of Investigations between twenty nineteen and twenty. 21 violent crimes, including aggravated assault, sex crimes and robberies increased 17%. Homicides increased 47%. Auto theft increased 86%. And according to the FBI, 2019 to 2020, Colorado had the fourth highest increase of crime in the nation. Phil, tell us what is causing this.
0: There's a lot going on. And the pandemic got a lot of stuff sideways. In 2019, Crime went down in Colorado. 2020, 2021, it's been a different story. I had a public safety roundtable in Pueblo with your police chief, your DA, and others, and people talked about some of the stuff that used to get arrested for, people took a little bit less vigilance, and I've heard this in other places. We got in some bad habits, so that's one element. Another element... We are dealing with a fentanyl and opioid crisis that is fueling crime and that is causing deaths. When I was here four years ago talking about this crisis, I said, I'm going to take on those big pharma companies, hold them accountable because they pushed a lot of these opioids. I was in Colorado Springs for a forum and someone said, I'm here. My wife started getting hooked on these prescription pills. She then moved to using heroin because it was cheaper and more accessible. She ended up homeless. She ended up overdosing. Then he told me that he lost his son, also an overdose, and he was here with his surviving son saying, when are we going to do something about this? Well, we're doing something now. I just met earlier today with folks in Colorado Springs about their region and the imperatives to invest in more educational awareness. People need to know these pills are now out there, these fentanyl-based pills. They can look like candy or who knows, a Xanax pill, but they're fentanyl and they'll kill you. We also need to get the word out that if you're struggling with addiction, you can get help, and we need more drug treatment recovery to help save lives. So one component of this is we've got to address this crisis around opioids and fentanyl, and I also went to the legislature and said we need to have higher penalties for those distributing these drugs. So we got a new law. If you distribute fentanyl resulting in death, you can now be charged for that offense, a new offense in the federal law. we got money to help support these investigations of fentanyl poisoning. We also... Don't have enough law enforcement. When I was talking with your police chief recently here, they're down mm-hmm. from what they need. And so part of the problem is if you don't have law enforcement, and during the pandemic, a lot of people on frontline jobs like law enforcement or nurses or teachers were like, I'm done. Yeah. And so there are a lot of these law enforcement agencies that are 20%, 30% down. That means they're not being able to investigate as many crimes as they otherwise would. So we're working really hard on that issue, too. And so the legislature get $5 million for recruitment retention of law enforcement. $3 million to support mental health needs so the law enforcement officers can stay mentally healthy on the job. And we're working to improve from the ground up the training in our police academies.
2: So that would probably be the toughest job with law enforcement, being the son of two law enforcement officers, is uh, mental health. Because to get a police officer to go see somebody with mental health, that's tough. But I think if you get that stigma out of the way, that's very important. And again, you know, uh, th- Not to share personal details, but my dad, divorced three times. My stepmom, who was a a sheriff as well, divorced a couple times. And and it's just that that mental health is such an issue when it comes to law enforcement. It creates burnout, causes people to quit.
0: Do you know what the life expectancy is for a law enforcement official? Mm -mm. 59 years of age. That's 22 years less than the average life expectancy. What trauma does to the body Mm -hmm. is deeply damaging, if not treated and acknowledged. So many law enforcement officers, like your parents, it sounds like, have this fantasy. I can tough it out. Mm-hmm. I can take it. It doesn't work that way. It eats you up from the inside out. I have talked to Sheriff Steve Nowlin in Montezuma County, who's so passionate about this issue. Mm-hmm. He makes sure that every member of his team goes into counseling particularly when something traumatic happens. We can't unsee a child abuse situation. Yeah. And here's the thing. If you go from an officer right from a child abuse situation to another call and you're dealing with that trauma, you and I heard this from another police chief, you might use excessive force yeah. and lose your job because you didn't know how to handle trauma because nobody else was there to say to you, you need to sit this next one out. Yeah. So when we talk about redesigning the training, curriculum at the academy level. We're doing it with emotional awareness in mind, with mental health and wellness in mind. We're also working on these critical needs for the profession, getting more support. We know why a lot of people leave this profession. It's a lot to take, Mm -hmm. and we need as a society to be there for them. The narrative about law enforcement also isn't right. The narrative needs to be these are people who are putting themselves out there Because they care about serving others. I've been to, and this is so awful, in the last 15 months, two funerals for Arvada police officers. The same agency had two funerals dying. The latest one in a domestic violence situation where um, Dylan Vakoff went in to save someone's life and sacrifice his own. He's a hero. And we need to celebrate that spirit of service. We've developed the whole My Why campaign in our office, the Peace Officer Standards and Training Program, to encourage more people to go into the profession. So, Sarah, you said, How did we get in this situation? It's a, it's a complicated issue. And what makes it more complicated? Different parts of the state have higher crime rates than other parts of the state. Right. Larimer County, for example, has done a much better job than Arapahoe and Douglas County in keeping crime under control. They've managed through the pandemic, frankly, better than some other places. Um, part of what they did is they didn't shut down the criminal justice system during the pandemic. And that was a part of it. Obviously, the opioid situation is hitting everywhere. On law enforcement, when I went to Larimer County a couple weeks ago, they're not down at all. They've managed to keep the morale up, to keep the staffing up. So huh. we in Colorado can learn from other states, obviously. But even with interstate, we've got things we can learn. I'm going to keep looking for what we can do better and pass better laws. We passed a law this past session on fentanyl. I mentioned another one on catalytic converter theft, which is a big problem that's going on trying to shut down those distribution channels. And we've worked on domestic violence intensively because unfortunately every year we lose too many people to domestic violence and, we need to keep asking, how can we save lives?
1: I think one of the biggest things, uh, concerns that we hear, especially from community leaders, and and you know all of them. You've you've been to all of these counties. You've been to all of our counties. You go around. The thing that we heard in our discussion a few weeks ago was the concern about the legislature reducing reducing standards, moving felonies to misdemeanors, um, and it's happening over and over again. Um, and it's it's really doing a lot of damage, but that's a legislature part. What do we do about that?
0: So part of what I've worked hard to do, and if you talk to people in law enforcement, they'll echo this, is to be a bridge. Part of the challenge with the legislature in Colorado is how quickly it turns over. And so you don't have institutional knowledge the way you might have had even 20 years ago before term limits. And so when you deal with criminal justice policy, which is really complicated, People might be sometimes a little quicker to think, oh, let's try this idea, as opposed to, wait a minute, let's make sure we've really understood it. And so what I work hard to do is to make sure that law enforcement and prosecutors are at the table. When I get involved earlier, I've got more of a chance to make a difference because they don't work for me. They may not care what I say, but I will try the best I can and I believe you often can, reason with people and say, listen, think about this issue. Let's work on it. This fentanyl bill was a good example. Um, there were a lot of people in my own party who were not happy with me because they didn't want to increase the penalty. Mm-hmm. And the case that I made about fentanyl is they're drug dealers who could have 60 pills on them. This is under the law that previously existed. And they would say, it's for my own use. And then the police couldn't arrest them uh, for anything more than misdemeanor. That's a problem. So we worked to lower it. I would have lowered it more than we even did, but at least it's a start. I think public safety and rising crime is more a concern. And so I think we're going to have different conversations going forward. I've already started some of those conversations about auto theft, about raising some of those penalties, and it's an open door. So we've got to do this the right way. And for me, the right way is always kind of like water. We bring everybody together. We have a mindset that we're in this together, and we figure out based on data, what are the best solutions, whether it's automobile theft, catalytic converter theft, or domestic violence, we in Colorado are problem solvers. We need to put that mindset to work.
2: So looking back, becoming Attorney General, what's some of the accomplishments you're most proud of?
0: The opioid epidemic, I mentioned this, it's really important because four years ago when I was running, my opponent said it would be irresponsible to take on these cases. And I said, this is crucial. And for people who've done any reading about this opioid epidemic, The people of Purdue Pharma were truly evil. They were lying to people. They were encouraging doctors. In southern Colorado, it was hit particularly hard with these pill mills. And so they've now had to pay up. And I've gone after companies like McKinsey and Johnson & Johnson. That may not be what I'm even most proud of in this. What I'm most proud of is, again, the spirit of governing we talked about. We got 19 regions put together. And Pueblo, I really appreciate, is with go basically south and southeast, a pretty big region, to – Put real energy behind solutions like more drug treatment, recovery, education, awareness, and other prevention efforts. That mindset is leading to results already. In the San Luis Valley, I just talked to Lori Lasky, the commissioner down there, they're going to have the first inpatient drug treatment center in a super long time because of the work that we did. So I would say the results we're getting to save lives in the epidemic is what I'm really proud of, but probably even more proud is how we did that work.
1: So I've said it um, about you and to you several times. Um, You really, when you uh, were elected, you really started out coloring outside the lines of what somebody would normally think was the role and the job of the attorney general. Why did you do that?
0: It's who I am. And this is worth emphasizing. There is a misconception that policy issues and governance issues are about Republicans versus Democrats. It's really about innovation versus inertia. Are you someone who sees yourself in just a box and that's all you know and do? Or there is no box. So here's an example that you witness firsthand. I go to Trinidad and people say, we've got this real housing problem right now. There's all this dilapidated housing. It's got asbestos in it. No one lives there. It's blighted. Maybe there are homeless people there. What can you do about it? And I say, I don't know. But if I'm elected, I'll take a look. So it turns out we have a settlement that John Southers, one of my predecessors, got $60 million to address housing. I ask my people, and I'm in office, how much of that $60 million has gone south of Pueblo? Answer, zero. Thank you. I say, well, why is that? They say, well, we have this program we use. It's a fine program, but it doesn't help in lots of parts of our state. I say, I'm sorry. We're creating a new program. And we did working with community colleges, you guys were integral in this process, to train people to rehabilitate rehabilitate housing, and we're now expanding to the San Luis Valley, looking at solutions there. Pueblo Community College here is now a partner. Um, Trinidad State, I mentioned Mm -hmm. as as well. And Lamar, we're really proud of this program because, like you said, I'm outside the box. There is no box. Let me give you another example, the police training. It hadn't been 40 years or more Mm -hmm. since someone had said, you know what? How are we training law enforcement officers in this state? We just kept doing what we didn't do before, which often includes, by the way, a whole lot of lecture classes which don't really train people for the field. So we're going to do more reality-based training. That's a major undertaking. Everything I do is with an innovative mindset and with a collaborative mindset.
2: And I think one important thing to highlight that I working for politicians for the past 15 years, um, is getting out there and talking with your constituents. And we'd always keep a track record of how many counties we visited, where we went. And then I always kind of keep a tally in my head of the people that don't necessarily visit that many counties. So have you been to every county in Colorado? Yes.
0: Um, (laughs) In fact, I can one up you on it. I have a contributor in every county from Colorado. I'm not sure who the last statewide elected official is who could say that, but it was important to walk the walk. I value every county. And here's the hard part. I honestly truly can't tell you which is my favorite because it's like choosing between your kids. I love them all for who they are. And they're each different. And there's different elements of Trinidad, for example, or Craig, to go across the state, Mm -hmm. that I am so deeply committed to and i'm working with the community colleges in both those two communities part of the reason i do it is because in order to be the people's lawyer you have to show up Mm -hmm. you have to build relationships you have to show people that you listen and that you care about them and then when they need something they can reach out to you like happened in pagosa springs when they almost lost access to heating oil during the winter they knew they could call me we got to work and we fixed the problem
2: and i another bipartisanship has kind of become a bad word it seems during this Recent election time, um, you you have support from both sides of the aisle, which is rare, I think, politically right now. So
0: i I will say to your point about rareness, Cynthia Kaufman, my predecessor, who's a Republican, mm-hmm. endorsed me. I don't know when the last time in Colorado political history that a predecessor of the opposite party endorsed her successor. I don't know when that happened. I assume it's happened sometime. I, I saw Dottie Lamb recently, married to Dick Lamb. I said It'd be like John Love endorsing Dick Lamb in the 1978 gubernatorial election. She's like, no, that didn't happen. So (laughs) it's not usual that it happens. Yeah. But it says something about Cynthia that she's willing to do that. It says something about our relationship and our work in the office not being partisan. More than that, by the way, we're pushing this idea of respectful dialogue. So Wayne Williams and I, former Republican Secretary of State, I think we've talked to you about this, Mm -hmm. Put together something called the Ginsburg Scalia Initiative. Yes, the idea is to encourage respectful engagement, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Scalia had together. And we did a thing called the Coddle Challenge, and you guys helped promote it. Mm-hmm. And Wendy Buxton Andrade, one of the county commissioners, was featured in a documentary with someone from Boulder. Um, the two you would not have thought they had a lot in common, but you watch their conversation, and what you see is we're all people who care about our kids, who want to live in safe communities want our kids to get a good education for people to have good jobs and let's start from that and let's work together to solve problems
1: for sure let's finish with a fun question okay oh do you have, did you have oh a no i
2: was gonna i was gonna say um after after this question Well.
1: okay we'll so let me ask you um and i wanted to ask this the other night but we didn't have time and the the spirit had turned a little <laughs> <laughs> fun um so you've been all over you've constantly do that in Colorado. What's left on your Southern Colorado bucket list that you haven't gotten to do that you wanted to do in Southern Colorado?
0: We're still working on this asbestos issue, actually, Mm. um, with commissioners. I think at the last, another Action 22 meeting, I went to talk to commissioners in back County about this. And this is an important issue to figure out how you dispose of asbestos so that it's done in a way that is both safe, but is not uneconomical. And part of the issue that I'm so deeply committed to, is Baca County or Trinidad or San Luis, they're not like Denver. No. And we shouldn't have rules that govern those communities like Denver. For example, I was in a community, I think it was Springfield, where someone said, you know, the state licensing requirements for child care facilities were so onerous, one child care pro- program here had to close down. hmm And they said, and now we have only unlicensed child care as results.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. This is
0: what you don't get learned in law school, the law of unintended consequences. So I want to be thoughtful and flexible and protect all of our communities, not have bureaucratic dumb rules do harm.
2: Where can people find out more about you?
0: So, if you want to know about my campaign we're in that season, PhilForColorado.com is your go to place. If you want to find out more about The Office, go to coag.gov. If you want just to see what is on my mind, you can follow me on Twitter, on Facebook, or Instagram. Um, and it's Colorado. although personal Twitter, you'd find it at PWiser. Nice. All right.
2: <clears throat> the part of the show I always butcher. That I always say I butcher? And sometimes I butcher saying I'm going to butcher butcher it. See, I butchered it right there. There you go. Um, Action 22 does not endorse or support candidates during an election season. What we do is support our members. And if you're a member of Action 22 and a candidate running for any office, please email us at show at action22.org. And this is your platform. Come on. Tell us what you're about. You have all the time you want.
0: Do it. It's worth it. They're awesome human beings.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, We have our... um, our annual meeting coming up up October 21st and 22nd. We really want to see you there. It's going to be one of the most important meetings that you'll attend, um, whether you're a candidate or whether you're a Leader Action 22 member. We're going to have some really fun stuff, but it's really for you to have um, that one-on-one and spend some time with all of these candidates and really get to know them and ask them your questions in an authentic way. Also, there's going to be hockey and awards. Um, So if you want more information, go to our website at action22.org. Phil, you want to finish us out?
0: You know, Jed Wortham, I think you're listening right now. And I have a message for you. Will you please grow your mustache back? (laughs) You heard it. Agree to disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so
1: much for joining us. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.